and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's Program Notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, October 25th through Tuesday, October 30th feature guest conductor Bernard Heitink and pianist Paul Lewis. The program includes two works, Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 2 and, after intermission, Anton Bruckner's Symphony No. 6. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 2, a work lasting about 28 minutes. Although it is known as No. 2, the B-flat Piano Concerto is the earliest of Beethoven's five well-known works in the great classical form. In fact, it's not even the composer's first attempt at writing a concerto for himself. When he was only 14, Beethoven composed a piano concerto in E-flat, and although only the solo part has survived, it clearly reveals that the teenage Beethoven thought himself a great virtuoso. The concerto was reconstructed and performed for the first time in 1943. But sometime over the next six years, Beethoven wisely shelved that score and began a new piano concerto in B-flat, over which he struggled on and off for several more years until he felt it was ready for the public. The teenage show-off had become a perfectionist. In 1792, the year Beethoven left Bonn and settled in Vienna, he wrote out a fresh copy of this concerto, perhaps to show his new teacher, Josef Haydn, whom he would soon dismiss, leaving neither man with kind words for the other. At the first chance to play the work in public, Beethoven evidently dropped the original finale, discovered among his papers after his death, and now known as the Rondo, work without opus number six, and wrote a new one. He also revised the slow movement. This is probably the concerto he played at the charity concert on March 29, 1795, his first official public appearance in this great music capital, although by then he had written another one in C major, the one we know as number one. Beethoven's old friend Franz Gerhard Wegeler recalls that the composer finished the finale at the very last moment while suffering from a bad stomach ache, but the evidence suggests that he was remembering a different performance and a different concerto. Beethoven continued to work on the B-flat score. He sketched and then discarded a new slow movement in D major. For a performance in Prague in 1798, he brushed up both of the outer movements and added a coda to the adagio. Still, he was dissatisfied. In fact, when he wrote to the publisher Breitkopf and Hertel in 1801, Beethoven hadn't a good thing to say about either of his piano concertos. I wish to add that one of my first concertos, and therefore not one of the best of my compositions, is to be published by Hofmeister, and that Molo is to publish a concerto which indeed was written later, but which also does not rank among the best of my works in this form. In truth, both of these concertos reflect Mozart's influence in their design, in their balance of piano and orchestra, and in the piano writing itself. But from the day he arrived in Vienna, Beethoven was impatient to establish himself as a new force to be reckoned with, not as the next Mozart. Moreover, by 1801, he had already completed another concerto, the third, that decisively broke away from the classical model and pointed in a completely new direction. That was the composer Beethoven wanted the power brokers at Breitkopf to notice. Nonetheless, he thought both of his first concertos fit to print, 
and they were published that year in the wrong order, the C major concerto in March and the earlier one in B-flat major in December. For all its classical decorum, there's something explosive and rebellious about Beethoven's earliest piano concerto. In the very opening orchestral tutti, for example, Beethoven swerves unexpectedly into D-flat major, at the same time pulling back from fortissimo to pianissimo to emphasize the jolt in a way that is quite un-Mozartian. Once the piano enters, we are in the presence of a new personality. By all accounts, the young Beethoven was a thrilling performer of a very different sort than Mozart. The newspaper reports praise his power, unheard of bravura and facility, and sheer intensity of feeling, and his concertos reflect these musical sensibilities as well as his new style of piano playing. Mozart's shadow still falls across the elegantly designed first movement, despite evidence of the subversive young Beethoven in the details. The bold and lovely slow movement, revised for the 1795 premiere, is one of his earliest attempts to display both his true originality and the range of his emotional compass. The finale is light and witty with a wonderful syncopated theme that the pianist finally corrects, putting the offbeat material on the beat shortly before the ending. The boisterous spirit of Vienna's new self-appointed musical king is apparent in every measure. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 2. And now on to Anton Bruckner's Symphony No. 6, a work lasting about 54 minutes. In February 1899, more than two years after Bruckner's death, Gustav Mahler led the first complete performance of Bruckner's Sixth Symphony with the Vienna Philharmonic. The concert was a triumph. Accepting the rapturous applause, Mahler surely remembered an awful night 22 years earlier when the members of the Vienna Philharmonic begrudgingly played Bruckner's Third Symphony under its composer's baton. The audience jeered and whistled, dwindling to just two dozen people by the end. The orchestra members fled at the final bar, leaving Bruckner alone on stage to face the few survivors. Mahler, then 17 years old and a student at the University of Vienna, was among those who remained to cheer. That night marked a new low for Bruckner, who was extremely insecure and had already known several crippling bouts of depression. This was merely the latest blow in his dealings with the musicians of the Vienna Philharmonic, who had rejected his first two symphonies as unplayable. It was two years before Bruckner recovered from the Vienna fiasco and found the courage to begin a new series of works, among them the Sixth Symphony. In the meantime, the situation with the Vienna Philharmonic eased somewhat, and his Fourth Symphony was given a successful premiere in 1881. But it was still a great day for the composer when the orchestra agreed to play two movements, the Adagio and the Scherzo, from his new Sixth Symphony in February 1883. Bruckner was so excited that he showed up at the dress rehearsal wearing unmatched shoes. Brahms came to the concert and applauded enthusiastically. The famous critic Eduard Hanslick, however, sat calm 
and motionless, cold as a sphinx, according to an observer, and wrote a characteristically devastating review. The powerful Hanslick, he once wrote, no doubt with pleasure, whom I wish to destroy shall be destroyed, had already dismissed Bruckner as a follower of Richard Wagner. Bruckner entered the Brahms-Wagner debate when he dedicated his third symphony to Wagner. Two days after the performance of the two middle movements of his sixth symphony, Bruckner learned of Wagner's death. This was a great personal loss. It was a performance of Wagner's Tannhäuser in 1862 that had given him the courage to write his first important music at the age of 40. Although his condolence note to Wagner's widow, Cosima, is shockingly inarticulate, a couple of stock phrases followed by etc., etc., the magnificent adagio of the Seventh Symphony that he wrote in Wagner's memory shows the real depth of his feelings. Bruckner was always ill at ease with words and often uncomfortable, if not flatly embarrassing, in his dealings with people. But alone, with his music paper, he said things of eloquence, an extraordinary insight. In his essay on the Sixth Symphony, Donald Tovey urges us to clear our minds and treat this as a kind of music we have never heard before. That was imperative 50 years ago when Tovey was writing because Bruckner's canvases were not highly regarded then, but even today his music is all too easily misunderstood. Like all his symphonies, Bruckner's Sixth accepts the model posed by Beethoven's Ninth, an expansive first movement followed by a serene and spacious adagio, a scherzo in sonata form, and a gigantic finale that gathers many threads together in a new light. Even Bruckner's opening pays homage to the start of Beethoven's great work as melody gradually pokes through the mist. Bruckner does not begin with Beethoven's low, tremulous chords, but with high, repeated notes of the violins, like a message in Morse code. Had Beethoven spent countless hours in the organ loft at Mass, he too might have written a big theme, like the one Bruckner now gives the low strings, based on the old Phrygian church mode, the white notes on the piano, starting on E. Bruckner's tune is in A major, but in the first phrase he writes an unexpected B-flat and then F and G naturals, which are not part of the A major scale. So from the start, Bruckner questions his own assertion of A major at the top of the score's first page. The first movement is designed on a vast scale governed by sonata form, which implies a dynamic process about going somewhere and the pressing need to return. But Bruckner moves at a leisurely pace. His temperament is contemplative rather than emphatic, and he is seldom in a hurry. Bruckner's first theme is a slow melody held together by the insistent hammering of the opening motif, repeated a total of 92 times, which he surely knew since he was obsessed with counting everything from the measures in his scores to the municipal statues he passed on his way to a rehearsal. After that, he introduces a lovely flowing theme which unfolds in a long succession of four-bar phrases. There are brass-dominated outbursts throughout, as well as times when the music stands still and only the stirrings of the flute can be heard. There is a wrenching moment at the climax when the opening material re-enters in E-flat, the flip side of A, and then drops mid-phrase into A major. The timpani enters at that point triple F with the opening rhythm to mark the significance of the event. 
The great adagio begins with a broad theme in the strings alone, answered by the heartbreaking sighs of the oboe. Bruckner's deeply expressive second theme conveys musically what words cannot. Listen to it with reverence, Tovey writes, for the composer meant what he said, and he is speaking of sacred things. What follows is a funeral march of a chamber music delicacy that surely was not lost on Mahler. Bruckner moves slowly but with mastery, writing in large paragraphs and concluding with a drawn-out coda that passes through moments of terrible dissonance before the various strands finally resolve. Bruckner's scherzos are not really social dances, it has been said, but dances of the elements. They are most easily remembered for their brilliant, highly repetitive cadences full of brass and thunder. But here there is much delicate and imaginative scoring as well. The trio effectively combines a pizzicato opening with hunting horns and a gentle benediction from the strings. Tovey points out that Bruckner is in no greater hurry at the end of a symphony than at the beginning. This finale unfolds slowly and deliberately. Each theme begins hesitantly, and each time the brass advocate a more decisive approach. Midway through, the melancholy oboe sighs from the adagio return. Almost at once, they are swept up in Bruckner's counterpuntal web and eventually overcome by the force of the full orchestra. Just before the end, there is one last quiet moment when the winds try to rekindle interest in an earlier theme, but it is too late. Finally, the finale theme comes face to face with the main theme of the first movement, and we realize that their union was preordained from the start. Program notes by Philip Husher on Anton Bruckner's Symphony No. 6. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. Thank you.